Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast. Podcast of brilliant excellence. We're talking about Book 11, Chapter 33. Pierre said to himself that the reason for the failing of the student in 1809 who tried to assassinate Napoleon was that he tried it with a dagger. Uh, still, when he bought a gun, he also bought a knife at the same time. Did Pierre subconsciously never want to fulfill his goal, or did he decide the reason why the student had failed after the purchase? To be able to follow through with the plan, Pierre carries his intention with dread and horror inside him. Because of this, he hopes he won't lose his intention like the night before, and he succeeds to keep on going until he hears a woman's desperate cry. Why is it this the thing that ends his focus? After entering the burning house to save the girl, Pierre is freed of his burdensome thoughts. Why does this free him? Good questions. It is, uh, it's like it gave him a new purpose, you know. He didn't have a purpose. He made up some weird one to do with assassinating Napoleon. And now, he's better. He's better. He's cured of his silly ideas. Twisted every way, he said, Lord, I thought Pierre had given up this plan to murder Napoleon the day before, and now here he is leaving the house on this mission. Luckily, he does the right thing and saves the girl from the fire instead. I thought the talk with the French officer cleared his head, so now maybe this will snap him out of it. Yeah, I was thinking along the lines of maybe it'll give him a new uh, kind of perspective on how to be helpful in the war effort. He can just help people to survive rather than trying to, you know, kill the grand leader of the enemy. Uh, Ripster 66 says, Nothing clears your head better than some definitive action, hey, Pierre? Here he is wandering around, half-heartedly planning an ill-advised attempt on Napoleon's life when he comes upon a situation where the ethical case is clear. Of course, he's going to try and save the child. That's a clear right and wrong situation, and he can know with certainty is attempting the correct course of action. I laughed out loud at the child fighting him and how he had to fight the urge to throw her down. Nothing ever goes quite as we think, does it? Yeah, you'd think he'd be grateful to be saved from a burning building and an enemy army, but hey, kids be silly. Kara Kigar says, I'm happy to see Pierre do something and for that thing to be heroic. Oh, Tolstoy, you old romantic. P.S. I've caught up after falling behind with the start of school chaos, it feels good. Well done. Yeah, good to see you back, Karakikas. It's been a been a minute. Alright, now I'm going to read the next chapter. Which is... Uh, well, it's two things. The first thing it is, it's the final chapter of book 11. Which is cool. I'm always excited to start the next book. Um, but it's also the 1000th episode. The 1000th chapter of the Hemingway list that you're listening to right now, episode 1000, which is a pretty good milestone, so I feel like we should acknowledge that, you know? I would say celebrate that, but I don't really have a celebration in mind (laughs) other than acknowledging it. So let's just acknowledge it. Have you acknowledged it? 1000 episodes. Damn, well done us. Um, I will also point out, it's not the 1000th episode of this podcast, we're actually up to like episode 1370 or something like that. Because uh, there was a, a year of war and peace was how we started this podcast. Then we went into the Hemingway list. We've done a thousand episodes of the Hemingway list. But we've also already read War and Peace. 
Interesting. All right. Isn't it weird? This is a podcast where we've read War and Peace twice now. If you go back far enough in the episodes, we're just reading War and Peace. <laughs> I think that's a really weird premise. The fact that it's actually, you know, a legitimate podcast that people listen to amazes me. Anyway, thank you for listening for 1,000 episodes. You are fantastic. Although I'm sure that most people listening right now have not listened to 1,000 episodes. Who cares? Let's keep reading chapter 34. Having run through different yards and side streets. I just had that thought. I want to check we are actually reading 34. Yeah, we are reading 34. Having run through different yards and side streets, Pierre got back with his little burden to the... His little burden, the little girl that's biting and kicking him. Uh, Pierre got back with his little burden to the Grozinski garden at the corner of the Povroskoy. He did not at first recognize the place from which he had set out to look for the child. So crowded was it now with people and goods that had been dragged out of the houses. Besides Russian families who had taken refuge here from the fire with their belongings, there were several French soldiers in a variety of clothing. Pierre took no notice of them. He hurried to find the family of that civil servant in order to restore the daughter to her mother and go to save someone else. Pierre felt that he had still much to do and to do quickly. Glowing with the heat from running, he felt at that moment more strongly than ever the sense of youth, animation and determination that had come on him when he ran to save the child. She had now become quiet and clinging with her little hands to Pierre's coat, sat on his arm, gazing about her like some little wild animal. He glanced at her occasionally with a slight smile. He fancied he saw something pathetically innocent in that frightened, sickly little face. He did not find the civil servant or his wife where he had left them. He walked among the crowd with rapid steps, scanning the various faces he met. Involuntarily, he noticed a Georgian or Armenian family, consisting of a very handsome old man of oriental type wearing a new cloth-covered sheepskin coat and new boots, an old woman of similar type and a young woman. That very young woman seemed to Pierre the perfection of oriental beauty, with her sharply outlined arched black eyebrows and the extraordinarily soft bright colour of her long beautiful expressionless face. Amid the scattered property of the crowd on the open space, she, in her rich satin cloak with a bright lilac shawl on her head, suggested a delicate, exotic plant thrown out onto the snow. She was sitting on some bundles a little behind the old woman and looked from under her long lashes with motionless, large, almond-shaped eyes at the ground before her. Evidently, she was aware of her beauty and fearful because of it. Her face struck Pierre and hurrying along by the fence, he turned several times to look at her. When he had reached the fence, still without finding those he sought, he stopped and looked about him. With the child in his arms, his figure was now more conspicuous than before, and a group of Russians, both men and women, gathered about him. Have you lost anyone, my dear fellow? You're of the gentry yourself, aren't you? Whose child is it? They asked him. Pierre replied that the child belonged to a woman in a black coat, who had been sitting there with her other children, and he asked whether anyone knew where she had gone. Why, that must be the Anferovs, said an old deacon, addressing a pockmarked peasant woman. Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy, he added in his customary bass. The Aferovs, no, said the woman, they left in the morning. That must be either Mary Nikolaevna or the Ivanovs. He says a woman, and Mary Nikolaevna is a lady, remarked a house serf. 
Do you know her? She's thin with long teeth, said Pierre. That's Mary Nikolaevna. They went inside the garden when those wolves swooped down, said the woman, pointing to the French soldiers. Oh, Lord, have mercy, added the deacon. Go over that way. They are there. It's she. She kept on lamenting and crying, continued the woman. It's she, here, this way. But Pierre not was not listening to the woman. He had for some seconds been intently watching what was going on a few steps away. He was looking at the Armenian family and at two French soldiers who had gone up to them. One of these, a nimble little man, was wearing a blue coat tied around the waist with a rope. He had a nightcap on his head and his feet were bare. The other, whose appearance particularly struck Pierre, was a long, lank, round-shouldered, fair-haired man, slow in his movements and with an idiotic expression on his face. He wore a woman's loose gown of frieze, blue trousers and a large torn hessian boots. The little barefooted Frenchman in the blue coat went up to the Armenians and saying something immediately seized the old man by his legs and the old man at once began pulling off his boots. The other in the frieze gown stopped in front of the beautiful Armenian girl and with his hands in his pockets stood staring at her motionless and silent. Here, take the child, said Pierre preemptorily and hurried to the woman, handing the little girl to her. Give her back to them. Give her back, he almost shouted, putting the child, who began screaming on the ground and again looking at the Frenchman and the Armenian family. The old man was already sitting barefoot. The little Frenchman had secured his second boot and was slapping one boot against the other. The old man was saying something in a voice broken by sobs, but Pierre caught but a glimpse of this. His whole attention was directed to the Frenchman in the frieze gown, who, meanwhile, swaying slowly from side to side, had drawn nearer to the young woman, and taking his hands from his pockets, had seized her by the neck. The beautiful Armenian still sat motionless, and in the same attitude with her long lashes dropping, drooping, as if she didn't see or feel what the soldier was doing to her. While Pierre was running the few steps that separated him from the Frenchman, the tall marauder in the frieze gown was already tearing from her neck the necklace the young Armenian was wearing, and the young woman clutching at her neck screamed piercingly, Let that woman alone! exclaimed Pierre hoarsely in a furious voice, seizing the soldier by his round shoulders and throwing him aside. The soldier fell, got up and ran away, but his comrade, throwing down the boots and drawing his sword, moved threateningly towards Pierre. Look here, no nonsense, he cried. Pierre was in such a transport of rage that he remembered nothing, and his strength increased tenfold. He rushed at the barefooted Frenchman, and before the latter had time to draw his sword, he knocked him off his feet and habbed him with his fists. Shouts of approval were heard from the crowd around, and at the same moment a mounted patrol of French Uhlans appeared from around the corner. The Uhlans came up at a trot to Pierre, and the Frenchman had surrounded them. Pierre remembered nothing of what happened after that. He only remembered beating someone and being beaten and finally feeling that his hands were bound and that a crowd of French soldiers stood around him and were searching him. Lieutenant, he has a dagger, were the first words Pierre understood. Ah, a weapon, said the officer, and turned to the barefoot soldier who had been arrested with Pierre. All right, you can tell all about it at the court-martial. Then he turned to Pierre. Do you speak French? Pierre looked around him with bloodshot eyes and did not reply. His face probably looked very terrible. For the officer said something in a whisper, and four more Ulans left the ranks and placed themselves on both sides of Pierre. Do you speak French? the officer asked again, keeping at a distance from Pierre. Call the interpreter. A little man in Russian civilian clothes rode out from the ranks, and by his clothes and manner of speaking, Pierre at once knew him to be a French salesman from one of the Moscow shops. He does not look like a common man, said the interpreter, after a searching look at Pierre. Uh, he looks very much like an incendiary, remarked the officer, and ask him who he is, he added. 
Who are you? asked the interpreter in poor Russian. You must answer the chief. I will not tell you who I am. I am your prisoner. Take me, Pierre suddenly replied in French. Aha, muttered the officer with a frown. Well then, march. A crowd had collected around the Uhlans. Nearest to Pierre stood the pockmarked peasant woman with the little girl, and when the patrol started, she moved forward. Where are they taking you to, you poor dear? said she. And the little girl, the little girl, what am I to do with her if she's not theirs? said the woman. What does the woman want? asked the officer. Pierre was as if intoxicated. His elation increased at the sight of the little girl he had saved. What does she want? he murmured. She is bringing me my daughter, whom I have just saved from the flames, said he. Goodbye. And without knowing how the aimless lie had escaped him, he went along with resolute and triumphant steps between the French soldiers. The French patrol was one of those sent out through the various streets of Moscow by Dorosnel's orders to put a stop to the pillage, and especially to catch the incendiaries who, according to the general opinion which had that day originated among the highest French officers, were the cause of the conflagrations. After marching through a number of streets, the patrol arrested five more Russians suspected, a small shopkeeper, two seminary students, a peasant and a house serf besides several looters. But of all these various suspected characters, Pierre was considered to be the most suspicious of all. When they had all been brought for the night to a large house on the Zubov rampart that was being used as a guardhouse, Pierre was placed under a part under strict guard. Alright, there we go. Pierre is getting himself in deep. He's a bit reckless. He just kind of follows a whim, doesn't he? Follows every whim. And here he is being arrested and taken as a prisoner of war, I guess you would call it. Something like that. Anyway, that's that chapter. Thanks for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.